You are listening to RudolfSteinerAudio.com. If you are listening to the podcast of this, it is located at RudolfSteiner.Podbean.com. Please consider becoming a patron. As well, there are two publishing houses, SteinerBooks.org in America and RudolfSteinerPress.com in England, who are the sole publishers of Steiner into English and have given me permission to do these recordings. Please consider patronizing them as well. This is a reading of a cycle of lectures by Rudolf Steiner entitled The Effects of Esoteric Development. This is Lecture 7, entitled Astrality's Struggle with Egoism, Amfortas and Parsifal, given on March 26, 1913. In my last lecture, I tried to draw your attention to two legends, the Paradise Legend and the Grail Legend. I did this to show that these two legends represent esoteric imaginations that we may really experience at the proper moment. You will recall that the paradise legend may be experienced when we become independent of the physical and etheric bodies, as during the unconscious state of sleep, and when we perceive clairvoyantly and consciously the physical body and allow our perceptions to be inspired by it. On the other hand, when we are inspired by the etheric body, we experience the grail legend. Now we must also remember that such legends were presented as poetry or as religious legends, and they became available to humanity in a specific form at a particular time. The origin of such legends, which emerge as poetry or religious writings in the unfolding of human history on the physical earth, is in the mysteries where clairvoyant observation discovered their meaning. Thus, when these legends were composed, it was most important to ensure that both the subject matter and tone were appropriate to the time and to the people who received them. We discovered in the previous lectures how, through occult or esoteric development, we change in certain ways in our physical and etheric bodies. Today the astral body and the eye will be considered in greater detail, and then we will return briefly to the physical and etheric bodies. We already saw that as we try to progress in self-development by acquiring spiritual wisdom and truth, changes are evoked in areas of our spiritual and physical organization. Through the Akashic record regarding very different periods of development, We are shown that in ordinary human historical development these various parts of human nature change very naturally, as it were. We know, for example, that during the first cultural epoch following the great Atlantean catastrophe, the ancient Indian epoch, changes in processes in the human etheric body became possible. The ancient Persian epoch saw changes in the astral body. The Egypto-Chaldean epoch allowed changes in the sentient soul. And during the Greco-Latin epoch, changes could occur in the intellectual or mind soul. Today, changes in the consciousness soul are the most important. If a legend arises, for example, during an epoch when the intellectual or mind soul changes, so that what occurs within the intellectual or mind-soul becomes especially important. Such a legend should be presented so that it considers what is appropriate for that particular time. 
It could even be said that in the mystery centers where the legend arises, the legend should be framed in such a way that the changes occurring in the intellectual or mind-soul are protected from the legend's potentially harmful influences while remaining particularly receptive to its positive effects. Within the mystery schools, those who have the task transmitting such legends to the world cannot merely follow their own innermost impulses, but must be guided by the dictates of the time. Thus, when we investigate properly in this direction, we will better understand the changes that occur, especially in the human astral body, when we develop esoterically. The astral body is somewhat detached in the case esotericists. In the, let me read that again. The astral body is somewhat detached in the case of esotericists, or those who seriously engage in anthroposophical inner development, and who place spiritual knowledge at the center of their lives. For ordinary human beings, it has not separated as much or as independent as it is for the one for one in the process of esoteric development. In the esoteric student, the astral body becomes independent to a certain extent. It detaches itself. The astral body does not slip unconsciously into a kind of sleep state, but becomes autonomous and detached. It therefore experiences in a different way what an individual normally experiences in sleep. Thus the astral body attains the appropriate condition. In the ordinary human being, living in the outer world, the astral body is connected with the other bodies, and each influences it in a particular way. In this case, the singular characteristics of the astral body don't come into consideration but when separated from the other members, its distinct qualities become evident. What are the distinctive characteristics of the astral body? I have already mentioned, perhaps to the dismay of some in this audience, that the characteristic feature of the human astral body on earth is egoism. When considered apart from the influences originating in the other members, the etheric, physical, and so on, The human astral body reveals its essential character and this essential nature is, in fact, egoism. That is, the effort to live solely in and for itself. Such is the nature of the astral body. Indeed, the astral body as such would have a serious problem, indeed would remain incomplete and unfulfilled, if it could not permeate itself with the force of egoism. If it could not say basic Quote, basically, whatever I do, I want to do through my own efforts. I want to figure out everything on my own. And above all, I want to give the most careful attention on my own behalf. Close quote. This is the proper disposition for the astral body. And if we keep this in mind, we will realize that esoteric development may present certain dangers in this direction. Because esoteric development necessarily liberates the astral body to some degree, those who take up anthroposophy half-heartedly, without considering what true anthroposophy tries to offer, may invoke in their esoteric training this characteristic of the astral body, that is, egoism. This may be observed in many theosophical and occult societies, where, although selflessness and universal love are continually advocated as moral principles, 
egoism nevertheless flourishes because of the natural dissociation of the astral body. (laughs) This attitude is perfectly justified for a detached observer of the soul. On the other hand, however, it is rather upsetting when, in the name of a frequently invoked principle, we speak of all-encompassing love. Notice that I didn't say, in the name of the principle per se, but in the name of a frequently invoked principle. Most certain soul conditions people speak most readily, excuse me, under certain soul conditions people speak most readily and most frequently of what they least possess, of what they lack most. We often see that the greatest emphasis is placed on principles precisely where they are most lacking. Universal human love, love for all of humanity, should in any event come to fully possess the soul in the course of human evolution. Universal love should inhabit the soul as self-evident, awakening the feeling that one must not speak of it so often in vain, that it must not be on one's lips unnecessarily. The well-known commandment says, Do not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Likewise, a commandment of genuine, true humanity might well be, Do not remind people so often and so vainly of the obligation to love all humanity. If silence on many things is better than endless talk, then in this matter silence and quiet cultivation in the heart are far better for the development of all-encompassing love than talking about it too much. Advocacy of this exoteric principle is in no way connected with what has just been described as the fundamental characteristic of the astral body, that is, egoism or the striving to become self-sufficient, self-possessed, self-reliant. Thus the question arises over how we may properly view this characteristic of the astral body, which appears to us initially, let's not hesitate to use the expression, as odious, the wish to be absolutely egoistic. To answer this question, let's begin with the basic facts of life. Even in ordinary life, There are times when egoism extends itself. We must view such increase in egoism as a necessary factor of life. Consider, for example, the basic hallmark of maternal love and try to understand how, here, egoism extends from the mother to the child. The more we come to know less well-educated people and observe the fierce protectiveness, so to speak, with which such mothers defend their children, the more we notice that a mother views an attack on her child as an attack on herself. The child is an extension of the mother herself. She experiences an attack on her child as an attack on herself. What she feels in herself is transferred to her child. It is a fortunate gift of nature that egoism may be transferred in this way from one person to another, that we can regard our neighbor as part, as it were, of ourselves and that we can thus extend egoism to another. We see here that egoism loses its negative aspects when we, as we develop inwardly, transfer our feeling and thinking to another and consider someone else a part of ourselves. By extending their egoism to their children, mothers claim their children as their own. They consider them to be part of themselves and thus act like the astral body when it says, quote, everything is connected to me, 
lives through me, is part of me, close quote, and so on. We can see something similar in instances more trivial than maternal love. Let's assume that a man owns a house and farm and cultivates the land. Let's also suppose this farmer loves the house, land, and the farm workers as if they were a part of his own body, seeing them as an extension of himself. Something similar happens when someone loves a dress as if it were a part of the body. The farmer expands the being of self to embrace the environment, watches over these possessions, and resists any attack on them as though it were an attack against his own person. Here the entire sphere is permeated with the farmer's egoism, which is extremely good for it. To be sure, what is called love may at times be very egoistic. Observation of life shows that what is called love is often self-serving. But egoism extended beyond the person may also be very disinterested. That is, it may cherish what it owns and devotedly protect it. We learn from such examples that life cannot be circumscribed by abstract concepts. We talk of egoism and altruism, and we can devise very beautiful theories based on such notions. Reality, however, destroys such systems. But when egoism extends its interest so that it considers the environment as part of itself, cherishing and fostering it, then egoism becomes selflessness. On the other hand, altruism may try to make the whole world happy by imposing its own preferences, its thoughts and feelings at all costs. And altruism may act on the grim presumption that if you don't want to be my brother, I'll crack your skull. In this case, altruism may become extremely egoistic. Reality that is concerned with facts and forces cannot be circumscribed by abstract notions, and much of what stands in the way of human progress arises from the immature belief that reality can be tailored in some way to fit abstract notions. We may therefore describe the astral body as an egoist. This means that every development that would liberate the astral body must recognize the interests of humanity by expanding and becoming progressively wider. Indeed, before the astral body can liberate itself properly from the other members of human nature, it must become interested in the whole earth and all of earthly humanity. The interests of earthly humanity must become our interests. Our interests must no longer be associated in any way with what is personal. Whatever concerns humanity, not just in the current epoch, but everything that has happened to humanity at any time in the course of Earth's development, must arouse our deepest interest. We must come to include in our concerns not just those related to us through blood ties or things related to us as an extension of ourselves, such as one's house, farm and land, but we must make everything associated with the Earth's development our own concern. When in the astral body we have become interested in all earthly affairs, when all the affairs of the earth have become our own concern, we may entrust ourselves safely to the egoism of the astral body. But the interests of humanity must become our interests. Consider from this point of view the two legends I spoke of last time. When they were given to humanity, they were given to raise human beings 
above their private and personal interests, so they might devote themselves to the general interests of humanity. The Paradise legend brings us directly back to that first stage of earthly evolution when human beings had not yet entered their first incarnation. They were about to do so as Lucifer approached them, when their whole development was still before them, when they could actually still enter into all the interests of humanity. The Paradise legend is the greatest educational legend. It raises the deepest problems of education and training. It raises us to envision all of humanity, imprinting in every human heart an interest that speaks to every human being. When the images of the Paradise legend, as we have tried to understand them, penetrate the human soul, they also permeate the astral body. Because of these images, human beings can extend their horizon to embrace the whole earth and the astral body may thus take an interest in all that now enters its domain. The astral body reaches the stage where it may consider the interests of the earth its own. Try to reflect seriously and conscientiously on the universal teaching power of this legend and on the deep spiritual impulse behind it. This applies also to the Greya legend. The Paradise legend is given, so to speak, for the benefit of earthly humanity, insofar as the human beings contemplate the origin, the starting point of Earth's development. In this regard, the Paradise legend is given to broaden a human being's horizon, so that it embraces all of human development. In contrast, the purpose of the Grail legend is to penetrate into the inmost depths of the astral body, into the archetypal interests of the astral body, because if left to itself, the astral body becomes an egoist and considers only its most innate selfish interests. We can deviate in only two directions regarding the astral body. That of Amfortas, before Amfortas was fully redeemed, and that of Parsifal. In relation to the astral body, True human development exists between these two. The astral body tries to develop the forces of egoism in itself if it introduces personal interests into this egoism. However, then the astral body is undermined and instead of extending its interests to embrace the whole earth, these interests are limited to a single isolated personality. Such, however, must simply not happen because then the whole human personality is wounded through the personality whose I is expressed in the blood, that is, we make the mistake of Amfortas. Amfortas's basic error is the introduction of personal wishes and desires, which may then persist in the person into the sphere where the astral body should have acquired the right to be an egoist. As soon as we bring personal interests into the sphere where the astral body must overcome them, it introduces a suffering that will not heal. We become the wounded Amphortas. The other error may also lead to harm and can be avoided only if the one exposed to such misfortune is as innocent as Parsifal. Parsifal sees the grail pass repeatedly before him and he too makes a grave error 
although one of omission. Every time the grail is carried before him, it is on the tip of his tongue to ask for whom this food is really intended. But the question dies on his lips, and finally the meal ends without his having asked the question. Then, after the meal, he withdraws without taking the opportunity to make up for his omission. It's as if a person not yet fully mature were to become momentarily clairvoyant during the night, as if separated by an abyss from what is contained in the citadel of the body, and after briefly contemplating it without having gained the necessary knowledge, that is, without having asked the requisite question, discovering that everything has closed in again around the moment of clairvoyant vision. Even after waking up, such a person would be unable to enter the citadel again. What was it that Parsifal actually failed to do? The content of the Holy Grail has been mentioned. It is the substance that nourishes the physical instrument of the earthly human being. It is the pure mineral extract derived from the food that in the purest part of the human brain unites with the finest sense impressions. To whom should this food be served? If we turn to the esoteric presentation in the mysteries instead of the external description, we discover that the grail should be offered to the person who has come to understand the maturity necessary to lift oneself gradually and with increasing awareness to knowledge of what the grail is. But how does one attain the capacity to lift oneself consciously to the Holy Grail? The poem clearly indicates for whom the Holy Grail is intended. When we turn to the tradition of the Grail legend in the Mysteries, this is obvious. In the original legend, the lord of the castle is the fisher king, a king who ruled over a fisher folk. There was, however, another person who also lived among the fisher folk and did not want to be their king, but wanted a different relationship to these fishermen. He refused to rule over them as king and brought them something other than kingly rulership, that is, Christ Jesus. This shows then that the error of the fisher king or Amfortas in the original legend is the error that inclined him in a certain direction. Amfortas is not fully worthy to receive healing through the grail because he wants to rule over his fisher folk by force. He does not wish to permit the spirit alone to rule among the folk. Initially, Parsifal is insufficiently awake inwardly to ask in full self-consciousness, quote, What is the purpose of the grail? Close quote. What does this question demand? It demands that the fisher king uproot his personal interest and enlarge his interest to embrace all humankind in imitation of Christ Jesus. Parsifal, however, must raise his interest above that of a mere innocent spectator to understand inwardly the commonality of all human beings, humanity's right, the gift of the Holy Grail. Thus, in a wonderful way, the original Fisher King, in the context of the ideal of the mystery of Golgotha, hovers between Parsifal and Amphortas. At the turning point in the legend, there is a delicate hint that on the one hand, the Fisher King has introduced too much personality into the spheres of the astral body, and that on the other hand, 
Parsifal has not shown enough interest in the general affairs of the world and is still too naive, too unresponsive to world concerns. The tremendous educational value of the Greya legend is that it was able to influence the souls of the disciples of the Holy Grail so that they perceived a kind of balance or scale, on the one side what Amphortas represented and on the other what Parsifal represented. Thus they recognized that a balance had to be established. If the astral body follows its innate, original interest, it will rise to the ideal of universal humanity, expressed in the words, quote, where two or three are gathered together in my name, there am I, in the midst of them, close quote. This is true, no matter where these two are found in the course of earthly evolution. At this point I must ask you not to mistake a part of, for the whole, but to take the lectures for today and tomorrow together. Each of these lectures alone could lead to misunderstanding. It is important to realize that at this point in its evolution it is absolutely necessary for the human astral body to be raised to the level of humanity in a very particular way, so that interests common to all humanity become its interests, and so that it feels hurt, affronted, and sad at heart when humankind is offended in any way. Furthermore, as we gradually succeed through esoteric development in freeing the astral body from the other human members, we must arm and protect ourselves primarily against the possible influences of other astral bodies. When the astral body becomes free, it is no longer protected by the physical and etheric bodies, which form a strong citadel for the astral body. When the astral body is freed, it becomes permeable and forces in other astral bodies easily work into it. Stronger astral bodies can influence it unless it can arm itself with its own forces. It would be a serious matter if we were able to dispose freely of our astral body, and yet, in relation to the condition of our astral body, we were to remain as innocent as Parsifal was at first. Such innocence will not do, because the many influences that come from other astral bodies could affect our own astral body in ways that correspond to their nature. In a sense, what we have just indicated may also be important in the outer world. On earth, human beings may belong to various religious denominations. Those denominations have their own creeds and rituals. Rituals surround the believer with imaginations derived from the higher worlds with the help of the astral body. As soon as people are accepted into a religious community, they are surrounded by imaginations that begin to liberate the astral body as the rite takes effect. Any religious rite liberates the astral body to a certain extent, at least for a few brief moments. The more powerful the rite is, the more it suppresses the influences of the etheric and physical bodies. As the rite works in ways that liberate the astral body, the astral body is enticed out of the physical and etheric bodies during a ceremony. That is why, and you may think I am being facetious, but I don't mean to be, no place is as dangerous for sleeping as in a church, because during sleep the astral body separates from the etheric and physical bodies. 
and as a result what transpires in the right takes hold of the astral body, because it is drawn down from the higher worlds with the help of other astral bodies. Therefore, dozing in church, a very popular pastime in some regions, should be carefully avoided. This applies more to churches that use ritual in worship and less to those religious communities who, because of a modern outlook, have abandoned formal worship or limit themselves to very little ritual and observances. This is not intended out of any inclination or disinclination toward any particular denomination, but strictly according to objective facts. It is a fact that when we have liberated the astral body from our other vehicles, the impulses and forces acquired with the help of the other astral bodies easily influence it. Therefore those who can freely affect their astral body, if they are stronger than those who can liberate their astral body to a lesser extent, can powerfully influence those others. The forces of the stronger person's astral body are actually transferred to that of the weaker person. If we then observe clairvoyantly the weaker individual, we find that this astral body carries within it the pictures and imaginations of the stronger astral personality. You can see that wherever occultism is to be cultivated, it must be accompanied by morality, because occultism dearly cannot be cultivated unless we try at the same time to free the astral body from the other vehicles. In the field of occultism, it is most disastrous when stronger personalities are motivated by a thirst for power at any cost in order to further personal interests, aims, and intentions. Only those who renounce completely all personal influence are really worthy of working in the realm of occultism. The highest ideal of occultists who want to accomplish anything worthwhile is the absolute avoidance of achievement via their own personalities and as far as possible the elimination of personal sympathies and antipathies from everything attempted. Those who have attractions or aversions toward one thing or another and want to work as occultists must carefully restrict those tendencies to private affairs and recognize them only within that sphere. In any case, sympathies and antipathies must not be given value or encouraged where the intention is to develop an occult movement. As contradictory as it may sound, we may say that for occult masters their own teachings are least important because in the end they can give only according to their individual talents and temperaments. Such teachings are important only if nothing personal is involved, but only what can help the human soul. Thus, occult teachers never impose any aspect of knowledge on their own era that they recognize as unsuited to the time, or perhaps as suited only for another age. We must remember these things when, through the effects of occult development, we speak of the characteristic nature of the astral body. In the preparation for our own age, and in its further development, another complication arises. What is the characteristic of our epoch? It is the epoch for developing the consciousness soul. Nothing is more closely connected with the egoism related to our narrow personal interests 
than the consciousness soul. Hence in no other age has there been so great a temptation to confuse our most personal interests with the general interests of humanity. Therefore our epoch must gradually draw, as it were, humanity's interests into the human, especially the part of the human eye, capital, that is the consciousness soul. Indeed, we can see as a compensation in our time that human interests press in toward the eye, toward the central point of selfhood. With this in mind, it is extremely instructive to seriously ask whether, for example, St. Augustine's title, Confessions, would have been possible in ancient Greece. It would have been completely out of the question, because the inner being of the ancient Greek was by nature in harmony with the external world, in such a way that external interests were the same as internal interests, which embraced the external world. Consider the whole of Greek culture. Its nature was such that we must assume a certain connection between the human being's inner life and the outer world. We can understand Greek art, Greek tragedy, and the Greek historians and philosophers only when we realize that among the Greeks soul life still poured out into the external world, and that the external world was, as a matter of course, joined to the inner life of the Greek people. Compare this with the confessions of St. Augustine. For him everything was filled with life, and nothing was abstract. In his inner life he searched, dug, and explored. If we look for the personal, individual tone in Augustine's writings, we find it everywhere. He lived long before the dawn of our own epoch, but he prepared the ground for it. In his writings we find the first dawn, long before the sunrise of our own epoch, fully tailored to the development of the consciousness soul. This may be seen in every line Augustine wrote. And for those of a more delicate sensitivity, every line must be distinguished from anything related to the spirit of ancient Greece. We know that Augustine anticipated the era characterized by selfhood, or the preoccupation with the individual's inner being within the physical body. We can then understand that someone like St. Augustine, who had broad interests and foresaw the whole course of human development, was genuinely horrified when confronted by a human being who foreshadowed the kind of egoism that necessarily follows from a particular higher development of the astral body. Augustine is a pure, noble, and great soul, confronted selfhood directly. One could say that he selflessly attacked selfhood. But he stood on the verge of the epoch when humanity would abandon the broader interests of the external world. Recall that in the third post-Atlantean epoch, Egyptians turned toward the world of stars and read their destiny there, and recall that the soul was still related to the common interests of all humanity. Of course, this was possible only when, thanks to the old instinctive clairvoyance, human beings could still maintain the astral body separately from the physical body. Therefore Augustine was horrified when confronted by someone who reminded him that higher development initially begets egoism. He could understand this, he felt it, and his instinct told him that the age of selfhood was approaching. 
when faced with someone who to him represented a higher development beyond the physical body, it was perceived as an indication of egoism. He could not understand that this person revealed at the same time an interest common to all humanity. Try to enter Augustine's feeling when, by his own admission, he faced the Manichaean bishop Faustinus, since he is the one I have since he is the one I have described. When confronted by Faustinus, Augustine experienced what a person may feel who, with nobility of soul, awaits the epoch of egoism, while waiting to protect that epoch against egoism by inner power alone. Thus he had to reject a man, such as the Manichaean bishop Faustinus, because in his eyes Faustinus represented something that could be avoid that should be avoided. Faustinus concealed something within that the epoch of egoism can never understand in ordinary life. The Manichaean bishop Faustinus confronted the church father Augustine with this. Augustine, who prefigured the age of the consciousness soul, came face to face with a human being who preserved his connection with the spiritual world to the degree that it can be preserved in a world occult movement and who thereby preserved the essential characteristic of the astral body. This horrified Augustine, and rightly so from his point of view. Let's move forward a few centuries. When we meet a man at the University of Paris, little known in the field of literature, for what he has written gives no insight into his personality. His writings appear pedantic, though his personal influence must have been considerable. He seems to have been especially responsible for a renewal of the Greek perspective on life within his circle. He was an excellent example of a Renaissance man. He died in 1518, and until his death he taught at the University of Paris. This individual was related to the Greek world in the same way, though more exoterically, that the Manichaean bishop Faustinus was related to Manichaeism which, along with many other things, had assimilated into its traditions especially the good, positive aspects of the Egypto-Chaldean age or the third post-Atlantean epoch. There was this Manichaean bishop Faustinus, therefore, whom we meet in relation to Augustine, and who, because he was a Manichaean, preserved the occult foundations of the third post-Atlantean epoch. In 1518 another man died in Paris who had brought over though exoterically, certain fundamental aspects of the fourth post-Atlantean age. Because of this, he was a sinister figure to those of his circle who still worked in the area of traditional Christianity. The monks viewed him as their archenemy. However, he greatly impressed Erasmus of Rotterdam while Erasmus was in Paris. It seemed to Erasmus that the outer environment was poorly suited to what really lived in that remarkable soul. After Erasmus had left for England, this man wrote to Erasmus, who meanwhile had become his friend, that he wished he could rid himself of his gout-ridden body and fly through the air to England, where he would find a more favorable soil for what dwelt in his soul. Thus, when we bear in mind the relationship between the sensitive Erasmus and this personality, we can begin to understand this personality who was then active and able to revive Greek feeling and thinking so vividly. 
And this individual who died in Paris in 1518 lived, one might say, precisely at the birth of the age of selfhood. He lived as an adversary of those who favored adapting the life of human souls to the age of selfhood, of those who were somewhat horrified in the presence of this soul whose actions reflected his desire to revive the Greek epoch when humanity was closer to the astral body's selfhood. Erasmus felt an affinity with this person called Faustus Andrelinus. Footnote, the description of the various Faust figures is taken from, uh, in German, Die Entstehung des Volksbuches von Dr. Faust by Hermann Grimm. See also Rudolf Steiner, Geisteswissenschaftliche Erläuterungen zu Goethe's Faust. And a footnote, sorry for my German. In the 16th century, we encounter another individual in Central Europe, described as a kind of wandering minstrel. The folklore of the time tells us that he abandoned traditional theology and then refused to call himself a theologian. He preferred to call himself a man of the world and a physician. He laid the Bible aside for a while and devoted himself to the study of nature. Now, in the period of transition, between the ancient and modern worldviews, the study of nature awakened in human beings an understanding of astral selfhood, as in the case of Manichaeism in relation to ancient Greek culture. Thus astral selfhood brought a knowledge of what then existed as the boundary between alchemy and modern chemistry and between ancient astrology and modern astronomy. The strange flickering between the old and the new viewpoints of natural science awakened in human beings, having set aside the Bible for a while, an astral activity that made them come to terms with the question of selfhood. We should not be surprised that once the consciousness soul had established itself, those who wanted to reconcile the epoch of selfhood with their traditions were horrified. And thus arose in Central Europe the legend of the third Faust, Johannes Faust, also called Georgius Faust, who was a real historical personality. And the sixteenth century wielded together all the fears of the astral body selfhood by combining the three Fausts, the Faustus of Augustine, the Faust of Erasmus, and the Faust of Central Europe, into a single figure, the Faust of Central European folklore, who also became Marlowe's Dr. Faustus. Goethe created his Faust by completely transforming the Faust of the popular legend. Goethe wanted to show through his Faust that we needn't fear this figure who carries within him something that awakens us to an understanding of astrality. Goethe wanted us to understand him better and thus demonstrates a kind of development whereby we may say we can redeem him. Whole epochs have grappled with the question of the astral body's egoistic nature. In poetry, in romances, even in history, we hear the echo of human abhorrence of the selfhood of the astral body and our longing to solve this problem of the astral body properly in a way that accords with the wise direction of the world and the esoteric development of the individual human soul. The end of Lecture 7